This morning we continue on in our study of John's first epistle, but I want to pose a question to you before we even get into the text this morning, and that question is this. Do we as a church believe that the gospel is enough? That's the overarching question. Not just surrounding this text, but about really everything that we do as a church. Do we believe that the gospel is enough? Because if we believe that the gospel is enough, it affects how we preach, it affects what we sing, it affects our programming and our activities, it affects the way that we interact with one another. In contrast, if you don't believe or if we don't believe that the gospel is enough, guess what else will happen? It will affect the way you preach. It will affect what you sing. It will affect the programming and the activities that you have as a church. And it will affect the relationships between one another. Do we believe as a church that the gospel is enough? As John continues on in this letter, and as he combats false teaching which we have established every single week, there were a group of people within the community that John is writing to that had broken off because they were claiming that Jesus was not God in the flesh, and they were also claiming that once they were in Christ, they no longer struggled with sin. I think Nick, in his prayer, beautifully said this morning how even though we are all in Christ, how incredibly sinful, prideful, arrogant we all are as Christians. When we experience valleys or difficult times in our walk with the Lord, we are often prone, myself included, to look for the latest really good podcast or the latest really good book or the even latest greatest sermon. Now, I read lots of books I listen to tons of podcasts, and I fall asleep with Tim Keller right next to me on my pillow every night. I fall asleep to his sermons all the time. So I am not against good books, sermons, or podcasts. I use all of them regularly. But the best thing that we can do when we are in the valleys of life is to actually return to the gospel. That's really the best thing that we can do. Spend time reflecting on the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we are steeped in shame and embarrassment because of our sin, it should drive us to reflect on God's grace. That reminds us that even though we have fallen short of God's standard, the free gift of salvation is still available through Christ. When we are fearful about the consequences of our sin, it should drive us to the mercy of God and cause us to recount all of the ways in Scripture time and time again when Israel was unfaithful to God, he oftentimes spared them the judgment that they deserved. This is the whole premise of the book of Judges that we studied last year. Israel did not deserve a single deliverer that God gave them based on their behavior. And yet, he extended mercy to them. When your prayer life feels stale, 
Think about Jesus serving as your mediator, the one who reconciles you to a holy God because of his death on the cross. So our access in prayer to God the Father is only made possible because of the gospel. So as we work our way through the text today, the points are very simple. Number one, center your life on the gospel. And number two, abide in Christ. Number one, center your life on the gospel. And number two, abide in Christ. Notice in this passage in verse 24, John goes back to this belief that what is most important is what you heard from the beginning. So he's reminding them yet again of this apostolic message that had been passed down from generation to generation and community to community. Now remember, the believers in the New Testament do not have a New Testament. They don't have an Old Testament. So the apostolic message is quite literally the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. This is the apostolic message that was being passed down from generation to generation. We don't have a complete, what we would call codex, of the New Testament. It was called Codex Sinaiticus, not until the 4th century A.D. And this wasn't even discovered until 1844. So many of the communities that John is writing to and many of the other communities that Paul is writing to, they do not have any resemblance of what we would consider a complete New Testament canon. So stories are being passed down about Jesus orally most of the time from community to community. So John does not mean here, go back into your New Testament, because that's not even a possibility when John is writing this letter. Instead, he's talking about the same thing that he talked about when he started his letter. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So in the midst of this false teaching that is taking place, what does John instruct his audience to do? Go back to the basics. Go back to what it's all built on to begin with, and that is the gospel. Now, the sense that he uses here is hearing. Because many of his readers, in fact, there's a lot of data that shows that first century Christians, many of them could not read. So they literally had to hear the gospel message with their ears. Paul reinforces this idea. In Romans 10, verse 14, he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? John does not try to convince his audience that they need some new revelation or some new teaching to combat the false teaching. He points them back to the original gospel message that he had handed down to them. 
The church of Jesus Christ has been built on the same gospel message for over 2,000 years. That should give us great assurance, as I said a few weeks ago. Celebrate the fact that what we believe is ancient and old. And it has remained the same for over 2,000 years. And God has continued to build his church on this basic gospel message about Jesus. Don Carson, I mentioned him last week. He's a New Testament professor. He's also the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, along with Tim Keller. Here's what he says. Perhaps more common yet is the tendency to assume the gospel, whatever that is, while devoting creative energy and passion to other issues, marriage, happiness, prosperity, evangelism, the poor, wrestling with Islam, wrestling with the pressures of secularization, bioethics, dangers on the left, dangers on the right. The list is endless, he says. This overlooks the fact that our hearers inevitably are drawn toward that about which we are most passionate. Every teacher knows that. My students, he says, are unlikely to learn all that I teach them. They are most likely to learn that about which I am most excited. If the gospel is merely assumed, while relatively peripheral issues ignite our passion. We will train a new generation, he says, to downplay the gospel and focus zeal on the periphery. Now, he's a professor. He's talking, really, to preachers and teachers in this quote. But the application is the same for all of us. Because it's really easy, within the life of a church, to get excited about really good things. Having healthy marriages is a great thing. Having godly parents is an awesome thing. Devoting time and energy to the poor, it's biblical. We're supposed to do it. Having gospel conversations with atheists or secular people, again, commanded to proclaim the gospel in the scriptures. But we must never forget that all of those things flow out of a healthy understanding of what the gospel is. Is In a series of essays, these came out during COVID. They're really long. Don't read them unless, well, you can read them if you want to. But Tim Keller wrote these really long essays. And four parts, he discussed the decline and the renewal of the American church. And in that article, the first article, he talks about the decline of the mainline denominations. Now, mainline denominations would be Episcopal, PCUSA, United Church of Christ, Lutheran, Methodist, and American Baptist, which is not us, but we're certainly not, we're declining as well. So I'm not trying to not pick on Southern Baptists. But in the article, here's what he says. One of the reasons that many of these mainline denominations have significantly declined since their peak in the 50s and 60s is because many of them began to adopt heavily secular modes of thinking. That is, they began rejecting miracles, the importance of being born again by the Spirit, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the Bible as a trustworthy document. And instead, many of those churches, and I'm not making a blanket statement about all of them, but many of these churches within those denominations began to shift their focus 
toward political and social causes at the expense of the gospel. And the data, unfortunately, does not lie. The Episcopal Church at its height was 3.4 million people in the 1960s. As of 2020, it dropped to 1.6 million people. The PCUSA had 4.25 million members in 1965, but by 2020 had dropped to 1.25 million. Again, I don't share these statistics to pick on any of these denominations. In fact, our own denomination certainly has its fair share of problems. But I use it as a warning to all of us that if we lose the distinctiveness of the gospel, that people are sinners in need of a savior, and we shift our focus even slightly away from that to more social or political causes, the churches will die. Because churches are not built on social or political causes. They're built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk about a book that was written a long time ago, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. And this sociologist looked at churches that were doing just that, growing amidst a number of mainline denominations that were declining. And here's what that sociologist found about those churches that continued to grow in spite of the decline around them. They believed these things. They did not confuse their beliefs with other beliefs, loyalties, or practices, or mingle them together and pretend like they are all alike. Number two, he said, they make they made high demands of those admitted to that organization. And they do not include or allow those that do not believe what they believe to continue within those churches. Number three, they do not consent to, encourage, or indulge any violations of its standards or beliefs or behavior by those that profess faith. Number four, they do not keep silent about their faith. Apologize for it. Or let it be treated as though it made no difference or should make no difference in their behavior. This is why having a statement of faith and a church covenant are really important. We have a group of people in our church right now that are looking at updating our statement of faith to make sure everything that in it, that's in it aligns with what we believe about the gospel and about Christ and a church covenant. So that when new people come into our midst, they see what it is we believe and what we're asking those people that want to join to confess to do. John reinforces the promise in verse 25. What is that promise? Eternal life. God is faithful, brothers and sisters, to the covenant that he made with his people starting all the way back in Genesis 12, throughout all of the Old Testament, throughout 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, during the death and burial of Jesus, after his ascension into heaven 40 days after the resurrection, and even now, as John is writing, some 60 years after Jesus has left earth and ascended into heaven, the promise remains for those that repent of their sin and believe in faith. Eternal life awaits. Paul reinforces the promises of God in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 20. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
So let me encourage you today. The same way that John encouraged his audience. To keep the gospel at the center of your life. Do not get distracted by seemingly good things that might even bring good results. But they don't bring eternal life. They don't bring forgiveness of sins to sinners in need of a Savior. Keep the gospel at the center of your life. Number two, abide in Christ. John uses this phrase that we have seen over and over again in his letter. I write these things to you. He's writing to combat these false teachers who were deceiving the true Christians. And as he teaches them, he focuses on the importance of the Holy Spirit, which we spent a lot of time looking at last week. But look at verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything that is true and is no lie, just as it has been Excuse me, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. If you're in Christ today, at the moment of your conversion, the Holy Spirit came into your heart. This is regeneration. We're going to talk a lot about regeneration next Sunday, so I'm not going to go into a deep dive of it, but it is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. And it is very much a mysterious thing. It is something that we really can't even verbally explain in many ways. It's a miraculous act of God, which he changes our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. It is a work of God by His Spirit. It is not a work of man by our effort. Regeneration is a work of God by His Spirit, not a result of man by His own effort. You must understand that. You are not responsible for regeneration. You were not converted because of anything you did. You were converted through the power of God's Spirit awakening you to this desire that you suddenly had that you never had before to repent of your sin and believe in faith in Christ. You didn't decide to do that on your own. You're dead in your sin. You don't know that until the Holy Spirit awakens your heart to understand it. This is the process of regeneration. Ezekiel 36, John 3, John 6, 1 Corinthians 2, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2. I could keep going, but I think I've made the point. Regeneration is biblical. It is laced throughout all of the scriptures. We cannot be people of faith left to our own devices because we are dead to sin. And dead people cannot bring other dead people back to life. Dead people cannot bring their own dead body back to life. It has to be something from the outside. That's the work of regeneration. Non-Christians, I'm going to be very blunt. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And there's nothing you can do to bring yourself out of that death. It is the process by which God awakens your heart. 
and you realize that, oh my goodness, if I die in this state, I will be separated from God forever. And that doesn't just come to you because you're smart. That comes to you through the process of hearing God's word preached and the Holy Spirit awakening within you the desire to respond. So if you're here today and you are not in Christ, we pray daily for lost people to be saved. So today we pray that God through his spirit would awaken your heart and you would realize that if you died today in your sin, you would be apart from God forever in hell. Apart from the Spirit awakening you. John reinforces in this passage to the true believers that they have been anointed by Jesus with His Spirit and that the Spirit abides in them. This is really important. The Spirit abides in them and they do not need anyone else to teach them. Now obviously, John is teaching them in this letter. So don't take that to mean that once you have the Holy Spirit, you no longer need teachers, you no longer need preachers. I mean, obviously my livelihood is somewhat dependent on you guys, so I would love for you to continue to come. That's not what John is teaching here. He's not saying because you have the Holy Spirit, peace out, church, I'm just going to do my own thing. And unfortunately, many people in our society today believe that. They believe that once they're in Christ, they don't need anyone else. And I would say that the teaching of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation actually refutes that thinking. The Bible matters. Teaching matters. Preachers matter. Good Christian books that you read to help you better understand your Bible, they all matter. But within the context of this letter, as John is trying to refute false teaching, he is trying to get his hearers to understand that you don't need any of this extra stuff that these false teachers are trying to convince you of. There is no new revelation. There's not anything new that you have to come up with. It's all been laid out in the gospel. The same message that Peter and James and John heard and believed is the same message that you and I believe today. And the Holy Spirit is going to reinforce within these believers the message that they had heard from the beginning. This is what John wants to get across. For us, this means that God's Word teaches us about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And one of the Holy Spirit's jobs in the life of a believer is to reinforce in our hearts and minds that when we are reading the Bible, what it says is true, good, and right. That's one of the Spirit's jobs. As you're reading the text, the Holy Spirit gives you assurance that what you are reading is, in fact, God's Word. This is a shameless plug, but we're going to be studying the Holy Spirit in one of our Delight in Doctrines over the next six weeks. Reed's going to be teaching that one, so make sure you show up. The Holy Spirit will always, always drive you back to the text because the Holy Spirit is in unity with the word. They are not in conflict with one another. One commentator on this passage pointed out that the Spirit's indwelling in the life of believers is the most fundamental defense against deception. Let me say it again. 
the Spirit's indwelling in the life of believers is the most fundamental defense against deception. Why would that be the case? Because as you read what God's Word clearly says, the Holy Spirit reinforces within your heart and mind that yes, that's true. It is good. It is right. You don't need anything else. God's Word is enough. And as I've mentioned, throughout this series, as we have tackled lots of heavy stuff, false teaching and all sorts of things, we must caution ourselves and those that we know that when we read the Bible, that there is somehow something out there greater that we're missing. So when you read God's Word and you finish it and you think, just didn't do it for me today. Let me go on to something greater. There is nothing greater. This is it. So if the emotional high that you come off of after you read God's word isn't what you expected it to be, that doesn't mean that God's word didn't work. It means that you're trusting your feelings, which by the way, the Bible regularly tells us not to do. Because your heart is deceptive. It's the same way when we gather in worship. If you leave on Sunday and you think to yourself, the worship just didn't do it for me today. That's your heart deceiving you. Because if the word of God is accurately sung and prayed and read, then the word of God did its work, regardless of whether or not you leave feeling on cloud nine. Our emotions and our feelings deceive us. But we live in a world where we always do what our feelings tell us to do. And that is in contrast to how God wants his disciples to live. We live based on objective truth revealed in God's word. Not how we feel about whatever it is that comes up in our lives. One of the reasons many Christians, I'm afraid, do not pour over their Bibles is because many times they wrongly assume That if they have read the Bible and they know all of the facts surrounding the important stories, then those stories really are no longer worthy of their time. Like once you graduate from children's Sunday school and you learn about all the miracles of Jesus and all the teachings of Paul, you pretty much got it. And so you leave it and you don't think you need it. But in reality, the more time you devote to reading God's Word over and over again, day in and day out, year after year, decade after decade, you will find that the Holy Spirit will continue to give you new insight as you read and study God's Word. I didn't say new revelation. I said new insight. He will teach you something in a text that you've literally read hundreds of times that you've never picked up on before. That's the Holy Spirit. That's giving you a new insight. John says the Holy Spirit teaches us about everything and that it's true and not a lie. And as the Holy Spirit teaches the truth about Christ, so the believers will abide in Christ. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit always work together in unity. They do not divide. Thus, the Holy Spirit moves the believer to abide in Christ as they read God's Word. So, let me challenge you today. 
Let the word of God do its work in you. Let the word of God do its work in you. The process of sanctification is not at the same rate for every one of us in this room. Jesus does not, in the Gospels, give us a five-year plan for spiritual growth. He does not say, here's a five-week sermon series on how to be the best Christian you can possibly be. That is not how Jesus teaches. So we must have faith in God that if we let the Word do its work, it will accomplish the purposes in you and me for God's glory at the rate at which God wants it done. There is no microwave that you can use to expedite your spiritual growth in Christ. I love to microwave things. I zap everything. I'm a big believer in the microwave. It probably is going to kill me earlier in life, but I'm a big believer in it. That's not how our walk with the Lord works. We can't punch in 60 seconds and expedite 20 years of spiritual growth. We let the Word of God do its work at the rate in which God has decided His Word is going to grow fruit in your life. I love the image. This image is beautiful. It comes from Psalm 1. And it describes a man. The whole psalm is about a man who delights in the law of God. And in verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does... He prospers, the psalm says. So, if you plant yourself in God's word, you will experience fruit. No fruit, though, goes from being planted to full bloom overnight. Not that I'm aware of. Some trees take years to produce good quality fruit. And this is not an excuse to delay sanctification. This is not an excuse to just say, well, I tried and I didn't grow any fruit, so the heck with that. That's not what Scripture teaches. We cannot put God on a timetable for how he grows fruit in us. We should always strive by God's grace in the power of his spirit, to live holy lives, but we are not all going to increase in holiness at the same rate. Again, not an excuse for sin, not an excuse for not doing the spiritual disciplines, but if we plant ourselves in God's word, like the psalmist says, like a tree by streams of water, we will produce fruit, and our leaves will not wither. See, John needed in this passage today, and we need to hear today as well, that when false teaching is happening or devastating things are taking place in the lives of our families or those that we know, or the world seems to be doing everything that we wished that it wouldn't do, we need to be reminded in those moments to plant ourselves in God's Word. Like a tree 
planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Plant yourself in God's word. Believe what the scriptures teach. That fruit will grow from a person who takes God's word seriously. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive me in my own heart when I am prone to think that your word is not enough, when I am prone to think that the gospel is not enough, that it's based on my preaching, it's based on my personality, it's, it's based on songs that we sing or programs that we offer. God, that is exactly what the enemy wants us to think. So may we as a church believe, not just collectively, but individually, that the gospel is enough and it's the word of God that changes hearts. May we not just say it with our mouths, but believe it in our hearts and give us the faith that we need to believe it. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.